Let's pray together, shall we, before we jump into God's Word here. Holy Spirit, it's my prayer today that you would be our teacher and that we would be open heart, mind, and soul to what you would do in us. Your transforming power would be moving in this room today, would be moving in our hearts and our minds. Lord, open us to what you would have for us, even your gospel. And I pray this in the name of Jesus, the risen one. Amen. Well, back in 1997 or 87, when the earth was still cooling, uh, I was living in Seattle. Uh, I was trying to make it in the music business, drinking a lot, smoking a lot of weed, and uh, beginning to realize that I was addicted to methamphetamine. And I was very, very far from God. And I had a sweet mullet. Now, anyone in recovery will tell you that when you realize your life is out of control, it's a mixed bag. No one wants to admit that their life is out of control, but at the same time, you become open to help. Every recovered addict will tell you the same thing. We need help. We can't do it on our own. Step one of 12 is to admit that we are powerless against drugs and alcohol, and our life is unmanageable. What sweet relief to finally admit the truth. That we, it's actually the beginning of good news. Now last week, Rick left us hanging in between the bad news. Oh no, I'm a drug addict. And the good news, well now I can get help. We're moving into the portion of Paul's letter to the Romans, which spells out the core doctrines of Christianity precisely and with wonder. Romans 3 through 6, out of all the Bible, in my opinion, is the most concise, inspiring, and convincing case for the Christian faith. This, today, is the good news. This is it. But if I had read Romans 3 through 6 back in 1987, I wouldn't have recognized it as good news at all. I would have seen it probably as something like a cruel joke. A mixed up, tangled mess of outdated ideas that make someone like me feel even more like a failure. But looking back, I also recognize that I I was beginning to make an inventory of things that would have to happen for my life to be saved. I wouldn't have described it in these terms then, but I was realizing that my heart needed to be made right with God or the universe or reality or however I may have phrased it back then. And here's the thing. I had no idea how to do it. Didn't even know where to begin. Now, I had dabbled in comparative religion and philosophy to some extent, but I began to take it much more seriously. Now, I didn't arrive at anything like an answer for a couple of years, but I did develop some broad criteria that would have to be met if a religion or a worldview had any chance of saving me, of getting me right with God. And I want to go through those three things. Number one, it had to come from outside the closed system of my life. In other words, it had to be beyond my own strengths and abilities. I had tried time and time again to change, but it finally occurred to me that this was really fundamentally impossible. No one can add anything to themselves. 
It's a physical impossibility. Like a perpetual motion machine or like the saying, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, which is just another way of your dad telling you, levitate. Right? Because your dad told you that, right? Yeah, that's a dad saying. It's not possible. I simply did not possess the power, the resources, or the know-how to create any lasting, meaningful change in my life, despite what all the New Age gurus of the, of the day told me. Second thing, it had to transform and not destroy. I knew that somewhere beneath addiction, lies, selfishness, and pain, there was a person of intrinsic worth here. And it was true of every other person, too. I simply could not accept rugged atheism, which claimed that I was nothing more than a lump of carbon and water with some electrical impulses. You see, because given where I was at the time, uh, it would have been easy for me to just end my pain if that were true. But no matter how I tried, I could not escape the sense that there is something in every human, even in me, that is worth saving. Third thing, it must be of a fundamentally different substance and nature than the things which comprised my life. Because more water doesn't save a drowning victim. More heat doesn't put out a fire. And more of my best efforts simply dug me deeper into trouble. If there was a system of thought, a religion, or a philosophy that could turn my life around, it had to be built of an altogether different kind of thing than what my life was currently made from. So let's start with Romans here on that point. We see that the good news of Jesus Christ is an altogether different substance than what the rest of the world is made from. Romans chapter 3 through 6. Let's look at three select passages to show what I mean about this different substance. First, Romans 4, verses 4 through 5. Now, to the one who works... Wages are credit, not credited as a gift, but as an obligation. However, to the one who does not work but trusts God who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited as righteousness. Next, some of you may know this one. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Romans 6.23. And then finally, Romans 3.28. For we maintain that a person is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Now, right away, we see here the language of contrast in these three passages. You see those bolded there. However, apart from, but, these are, these are hinge words to show contrast. Gift, not wages. Life, not death. Trust, not works. Righteousness, not sin. You can actually hear it here. You can make a little mini sentence out of that first one. If you read just the underlying parts I have up there, listen to it. Wages are an obligation. However, the one who trusts God, their faith is credited as righteousness. And then we see, what are those wages? 623, those wages of sin is death. So we see the contrast beginning to emerge here. You can hear here how the life as a, of a Christian is fundamentally, at its very core, different than any other way of life. The gospel is altogether a different substance and nature. 
The heart will be made right with God because of faith. And that right heart is a gift, free of charge. Now, by contrast, in 1987, my life was exclusively a wage economy. I earned the things that comprised my life, good and bad. If I was going to experience peace, it would be because I worked for that peace. Same for love. I had to work to find it, produce it, and protect it. Of course, money and things. I had to work to find it, produce it. But also heartbreak, pain, and loneliness. I earned those things by lying, by being selfish and using people. I worked hard at partying, and the paycheck was fun for a while. But soon the wages for that work were sickness bone weariness, and near poverty. And I earned every bit of my life. I earned it all. You see, we live in a world that's dominated by laws of all kinds. The law of averages. The laws of physics. The law of return on investment. The law of cause and effect. What goes up must come down. What goes around comes around. You finally get what you deserve There is no honor among thieves. A bird in the hand is worth two in the bush. Hell hath no fury like a woman scorned. Nice guys finish last. The substance of our world is law, rules. It's also true of every religion and philosophy I looked into. Islam, Buddhism, even Mormonism, Hinduism, all share the same basic wage economy. You earn your peace. You work for love and you're punished if you fail to keep the rules. Can you see the fundamental difference between what Paul describes here in Romans and those things? There was the bad news of the law contrasted with the good news of grace. He explains, first, it's not about works. It's not about what you do. It's about faith. He uses Abraham as an example in chapter 4. In verse 3, I'm going to read you the message version of this, and I love this. Abraham entered into what God was doing for him, and that was the turning point. He trusted God to set him right instead of trying to be right on his own. Let me read that again. Now, I, I want you to understand this. This is the core of your Old Testament now. This is your Old Testament. Here's what it says. Abraham entered into what God was doing for him. And that was the turning point. He trusted God to set him right instead of trying to be right on his own. Wow. Did you catch it? It's not about what Abraham did. It was Abraham trusting in God, having faith in God. That's what makes the heart right, trusting him. Sure, you'll end up wanting to do right things, but that's not what makes you righteous. Righteousness comes from trusting Jesus. Second, it's a gift. It's not earned. The free gift of righteousness through faith in Christ. Friends, I predict there are three groups of people listening to this today. The first group of you, it's just not registering. But I, I, want to, I want you to get how radical this gospel is in comparison to any other way of thinking. There has never been anything like this before or since. Find me anything else in human thought that is as perfect, 
that is as beautiful and that is as commonsensical as being made right by faith in God who does for us what we cannot do ourselves simply because He loves us. Find me anything else that's that simple and elegant and that just makes sense. There isn't anything. But there's a second group here today. You've bought into the good news, but you've just stopped being floored by it. You've grown bored or numb. It moved you once, but it just doesn't anymore. And it would be a whole other sermon, but let me just say, don't let the skeptical, angry, and bitter voices of society rob you of the daily joy that you have been saved. Who are the most grateful people in the world? The people that know where they should have been, where they could have been. The people who've been saved. I have been saved. Don't let the world rob you of that truth. But third, this may be the first time you've really heard this message. Or maybe it's the first time it's begun to make sense. So let me just underscore this thing. The bad news from last week. Your heart is not right with God. And you know it. Let's be honest. You're separated from God because your heart contains selfishness and pride and fear and anger and bigotry just like mine. You try to be different on your own, but it never lasts. It never really works. It doesn't matter how many good deeds or hours of meditation you do, the darkness still remains. But here in Romans, we discover that God has made a way for you to be right. It's having faith in His Son and accepting His righteousness for your own. And it's absolutely free. No obligation. Wow. But let's go to my second criteria from way back in the day. This way of being made righteous, it had to transform me and not destroy me. Romans 3.20 Therefore no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law we become conscious of our sin. We do not lose our consciousness of sin and the law. We don't lose ourselves. We are not destroyed and then reconstructed as some new thing, truly. The law remains with us as a pointer, reminding us where our faith must be directed and where we came from. Think about Peter walking on the water. If the point of that whole affair was for Peter to walk on his own, God could have just changed Peter into some type of being that was able to do that. I don't know, give him big flippers or inflatable feet or something. I don't know. But if that was the point, God would have done something like that. But the point was, the same old Peter, hot-headed, loud-mouthed Peter, could walk on the water when? When he put his faith in Jesus. It was faith in Jesus that was the point. Peter was a man with strengths and weaknesses, and he was loved by God as he was. God could have turned him into a faithless robot, I suppose, but he wanted the original Peter who chose to put his faith in Christ. He wants you and me, the people that we are, putting our faith in Christ 
and receiving His righteousness. You see, God is not opposed to you following the law. He's opposed to you trying to earn His love by following the law. Let me say that again. God is not opposed to you following the law. He's opposed to you trying to earn His love by following the law. The same Dan Hazen who used drugs, lied, cheated, stole, and served himself back in 1987 is not dead. He's right here. Pastor Dan, do you know how crazy that is? (laughs) Do you know how astoundingly insane? Glory to God. Glory to God. And finally, my first criterion was that whatever was going to make my heart right had to come from outside. Had to come from outside me, from somewhere else. I'm a closed system. And as much as I might try to rearrange my sin and push really hard and try to make it not sin, it was still going to be there. I needed something from outside. Romans 3, 21 through 26. But now, apart from the law... The righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify, by the way. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement, through the shedding of his blood, to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Now, this passage here drips with so much significance. We could... We could do a college class on this, but we're going to move through this relatively quickly and hit the big parts. First, that first phrase, apart from the law. Right out of the chute, this is not karma. It's not rules and transactions. This comes from outside the economy of earning that defines our world. Second, the law and the prophets testify to this. This is important to note. This plan has been in the works from the beginning. And if you will only look back and see, you will recognize that it's been coming since day one. Remember that passage in uh, chapter 4 about Abraham? It's there in Abraham. This has been coming from the beginning of time. Next. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. Boom! There it is. 13 words. Every word having weight. In fact, I want to stop. We're going to say this out loud together slowly. These 13 words, and I want you to hear the weight of every single word. Let's say this together. Verse 22. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. Astounding. You are made right with God when you put your faith in Christ. You do not work. God does not owe you. 
It's a gift. It's not a wage, and you can't manufacture it. It's brand new from outside your little closed system, and it transforms you from a struggling sinner to one who is in right standing with God. That is good news. Next, God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. And we have to take this one in chunks. So let's talk atonement. Every time we break the moral law, it's like stealing from God and others. When we lie or use someone for our own gain, it's like we're taking life force from them, even if they don't know it. Killing, abuse, and theft are obvious, have obvious, tangible results. But here's the deal. We don't really have any way to truly pay those debts back. Oh, we can patch them over, disguise them, pay restitution even. But those of you who've ever really been hurt, understand, something will always be missing. Because we're in a closed system. Let me explain what I mean by closed system for a minute. Uh, We see this at work with climate change right now. You ever heard of the carbon cycle? Right, so carbon is a big component of our world. And there's only so much of it, and all of it's right here. And we figured out a couple hundred years ago that if we dig a hole way down, we can find big pools of this carbon-rich stuff called petroleum, oil. And we pull all that carbon out, and then we burn it in our cars and in our factories. And guess what? Does Does that carbon go away? No, it's a closed system. We just convert it to CO2. And where does that go? Up in the air. And so now we see that happening and it's creating climate change amongst other things, right? So then what happens to that carbon? Well, thank God we've got trees. What do trees do? Trees soak in that carbon, right? But then what do we do with those trees and all that carbon? Because where does the carbon go in a tree? Wood. Imagine the biggest Douglas fir you've ever seen. That's mostly carbon. Throw it in a fire and you see what happens. What are you left with? Carbon. And where does the rest of it go? Back into the air. We can never get rid of any carbon. We just push it around. We just move it. And if we're trying to manage it in a way that we think is smart, like we've been doing, look what we've done. We don't understand all the consequences, do we? We still don't understand it. So now just apply this to human endeavors and that spiritual transaction, the the amount of love and acceptance and righteousness that's available in a closed system. Even though we might want to, we humans simply don't have the power needed to make the results of something like child abuse go away. You can't just make that go away. It's always going to be here. It just gets pushed around. In the Old Testament, you know what God says? People, people think it's a curse from God. It's not. He said, the sins of the father will be visited onto the seventh generation. That's not a curse from God. That's just him saying, hey, you're in a closed system. You might want to think about what you're doing with all your carbon. You might want to think about that crime you're about to perpetrate on somebody because it's going to carry to your grandchildren and to their grandchildren because that's how it works. No matter how hard you work, you can never put the full amount of trust back in a relationship after it's been broken. Not on your own. You can't put Humpty back together again. There will always be a scar. We will all walk with a limp. 
No one gets out alive because sin and decay and death are properties of this fallen world and even good people who are powerless to make up for the times when they're not good people. But it sounds, it sounds like I'm backing up into the bad news again. <laughs> I want to stop there. This is the good news week. If there's any hope, if all the evil and pain and brokenness that I'm responsible for is ever going to be made right again somehow, someone from outside the system, someone who's not part of the problem is going to have to take care of it. They're going to have to atone for it. That's what it means. Someone is going to have to atone for this, for what I've done. There's another important word that goes with atonement. Sacrifice. Sacrifice means to give up something valuable for the sake of others. Atonement means paying a cost to put something back together again. When you think atonement, think at-one-ment. Atonement, at-one-ment. Put those words together, sacrifice and atonement, and we have Jesus giving up something valuable to put our relationship with God back together again. What's he give up? His life. His life. Now, the last two phrases. The shedding of blood received by faith. The blood shedding is an understandable stumbling block. It seems archaic and cruel. But look again at our closed system. Every time you eat, whether you're a seventh-level vegan or a committed carnivore, Something else has to die so that you can live. Every time you eat. Remember, it's a closed system. So, some kind of death occurs. There's blood. Life must be introduced into our dying world from outside. And this is where the divinity of Jesus, His Godhood, is mind-blowing. And where it's very important. Because, you see, I can imagine a God who exists outside our closed system and I can imagine him creating a life big enough and perfect enough to make us right again and, and that he could sacrifice that life on our behalf. I can imagine that. But could he really call himself loving if he made the most amazing life form ever, the most beautiful, perfect life form, and then he just killed it in order to save us, who were just a bunch of ingrates anyway, who would probably not understand it and not be happy about it? Could we call that God loving? I mean, I couldn't. In order to call himself just, and remember last week in the bad, bad news, we recognize God's wrath, that's his justice. That he looks in on things like child abuse and genocide. He doesn't wink at it. He recognizes that it's evil and it's got to be corrected. He must do something about it. He must be just in order to be loving. And true love cannot exist with injustice. So, to be loving and just, he becomes the sacrifice himself. Verse 26, to be just and the one who justifies. God sacrificed himself Jesus of Nazareth. 
Now, increasingly, some liberal theologians are, are scrambling to avoid this reality that's revealed in Romans because it's really uncomfortable. We really don't like it. Lots of implications, and, and a lot of people are scrambling to get rid of this sacrificial atonement idea. Critics say things like sacrificial atonement is divine child abuse, the father torturing the son. But this ignores Jesus' own claim that he and the father are one, that he's divine, and that it was his choice to die for us. It's not supposed to make you comfortable. It's supposed to break you. Finally, it's received by faith. In John chapter 6, after miraculously feeding 5,000 people, Jesus seizes it as a teaching moment about this atoning sacrifice that he's soon to make. He says this, You're looking for me, not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on Him, God the Father has placed His seal of approval. Well, then they asked Him, What must we do to do the works God requires? Jesus answered, The work of God is this, to believe in the One who He has sent. Later in verse 53, Jesus says, Very truly I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise them up the last day. For my flesh is real food and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in them. Just as the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. And later in verse 66, I think it's the saddest words in the New Testament. From this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. Why? Because that's scandalous. That's weird and gross eat my flesh and drink my blood? What is that? But listen carefully, verse 48. I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, yet they died. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which anyone may eat and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. Did you know that in Egypt, where it's thought that bread was made for the first time by humans tens of thousands of years ago, the word for bread and the word for life are the same word. Isha. Isha means bread. Isha means life. Jesus claims that he is the life-giving bread. The power of life coming from where? Where does it come from? It comes from heaven. It comes from outside the closed system. He is bringing love and justice in himself and then leaving it behind for us as nourishment through his sacrifice. If we take it in by faith.
by faith. Why? Well, it is clear and demonstrable fact that billions of Christians have not actually eaten the blood and flesh of a single human being for the last 2,000 years. There is clearly something else going on here that many of those first followers misunderstood and therefore left. Romans 3.25 We're saved through faith in the shedding of blood, not by the drinking of blood. We're saved by faith in the shedding of blood. The act of communion, which Jesus was referring to, and which many of us did earlier this morning, in many ways is a powerful mystery, to be sure, but also a sign, a symbol, and a reminder of what Jesus Christ did to make a righteous heart possible. We take in bread and juice as a way to speak deeply to our own souls the good news that we long to hear and to renew our minds that since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance, character. And character, hope. Hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Because you see, at just the right time, When we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 5, 1-8. Now, we need to acknowledge that there are all kinds of learners, right? Some of us learn best through hearing. Some of us learn through seeing or touching. So I want to give, for those of us who maybe learn visually, maybe uh, a, a chance here to learn in a different way. I hope you can see. Can you all see up here? I want you to imagine these three glasses. Nice pure, clean water. This is us. We were made good, the Scriptures reveal. We were made good. That's what it says in Genesis chapter 1. But it also says in the Scripture that through our own choice, sin entered the world. And there it is. Now it's corrupted. It's been wrecked came in to each of us and well we could even make the case well maybe it didn't come in directly through me but you know what we have children and oh now it's all corrupted and so you know we set up all kinds of religious systems where well now maybe I'll keep this rule but it just seems to move things around and well I've got to make up for it here's a kind of law I'm going to pay restitution but it doesn't matter what we do in this closed system it just more of it comes in as we fail and it's a mess And how do we undo what has been done? Because this is you and this is me. It's undrinkable. It's ruined. 
But we, we've heard today about the good news that Jesus, the Christ, the risen one, comes and, and when he comes into us, miracle of miracles through his power we're made new again and friends not only this but what the scriptures reveal is that all of it all of it was taken in by him and it cannot be changed this is the power of the Christ to renew to make us clean again not because we earned it not because we worked for it but because of who he is. Now maybe this is news to you. Good news. Maybe you've never really heard this before. Maybe you've heard it again in a new way. Maybe today's the day that you just need to embrace it again in a new way. And remember, this is all by faith. What does that mean? It means that it's a commitment in the core of who you are to accept the truth of this and let it bloom in you to permit it. Because the one thing you can ever take credit for is your obedience. The submission of your will to His. And so by an act of faith, it's, it's really just as simple, simple as a prayer. And maybe you can pray this with me if you'd like to. In your hearts and apply your own words to it, but it would be just something like this. Jesus, I'm tired. I'm so done. I just can't do this anymore. I've tried and I've tried. And there have been days that I've just stopped trying and I've just plopped at the side of the road with my hands, my side, because I can't. I can't. And I'm done. I'm done trying on my own and I just, I acknowledge that you are good. You are the only good thing and that somehow you love me. And so today, I put aside all my striving and I ask you to come into my world to be my Lord, to be my Savior, to forgive me. You, you say that you're going to forgive everything I've done, all the things that have never seen the light of day that nobody else knows about. The deepest, darkest parts of me you have seen and you will take it on and make it clean again. I believe it and I accept it today. Lord, I want to follow you from this day forward. I'm going to let you be my leader. I'm going to walk in your way and I'm going to trust that you're going to bring life into me. Even in days when there's suffering, I know that that's going to change me and that hope will come and that one day we'll be together. And I thank you for this gift and I accept it freely and embrace it fully. And I do it in your name. Amen.